In June of 1978, a team of Soviet geologists were searching for natural resources in the desolate mountain forests of southwestern Siberia when they encountered something that they were not expecting. Looking for a place to land, their helicopter pilot saw something 6,000 feet up on a mountainside approximately 100 miles north of the Mongolian border and 150 miles, more than 150 miles from the nearest settlement, he saw a clearing in the forest, what appeared to be a garden that had been there for a long time. Soviet authorities had no knowledge of anyone living in the region. And so the geologists went to investigate, and they found a small hut of a cabin in which lived an old man named Karp Lykov and his four adult children. Karp Lykov had retreated into the Abakan mountain range in the 1930s, belonging to a sect of the Russian Orthodox Church known as the Old Believers. They had come under fierce persecution due to the communists. In 1936, Karp Lykov had been working beside his brother outside their village when a communist patrol shot and killed his brother. And Karp responded by scooping up his wife and, at that point, two children and retreating into the deep mountain forests. And deep in the forest, at least virtually cut off from all human society, they made a home for themselves, and two more children were born to the couple in the early 1940s. Now, as you can imagine, survival in such circumstances was not easy. Famine always seemed to be lurking not too far in the distance. One of the Lykov daughters, Agafia, remembered the late 1950s as the hungry years. She said, we were hungry all the time. And then in 1961, a June snow and a hard frost killed their garden. And their rye crop was spared extinction by what the family regarded as a miracle when a single stalk of rye sprouted in their pea patch. The family built a fence around that single sprout and guarded it day and night so that it would mature and grow and produce its grain. And when they harvested that stalk, it had produced 18 seeds from which they carefully, over time, established their rye crop once again. When a single seed dies in the ground, it produces much fruit. And this is the truth to which our Lord Jesus draws our attention this morning as he implicitly compares himself with seed that dies in the ground and bears much fruit. He says to us, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. So let's look to our text this morning. John chapter 12. We'll be in uh, John chapter 12, verses 20 through 36 together this morning. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And when Jesus answered them, and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. Now, as we consider these verses this morning, we'll do so under three main points. First, Jesus laid down his life, and you should too. Secondly, Jesus brings judgment. Third, believe in the light. Jesus laid down his life, and you should too. Jesus brings judgment. Believe in the light. Now, last week we saw how at the triumphal entry, Jesus had gone into Jerusalem to the the shouting crowds who were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And John told us in verses 17 and 18 that those who had seen him raise Lazarus from the grave continued to speak about the miracle. People heard about the miracle. They were going out to see Jesus. And the Pharisees then, in their disgust at the situation, had said, as we saw last week in verse 19, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And the odd thing, though, is, is that what these Pharisees were saying in their moment of hyperbolic disgust actually proved to be true, didn't it? When they said that the whole world was going after Jesus, they meant a lot of people are going after Jesus. But what we actually find here in John 12 is that, in a way, the whole world was starting to go after Jesus. Here we have these Greeks who had gone up to the feast to worship. We don't know anything about them other than that they were Greeks and that they had gone up to the feast to worship at Jerusalem. They were certainly at least God-fearers, perhaps possibly full proselytes to Judaism. But one way or the other, they had gone up to Jerusalem to the feast to worship, and now they said to Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, if we stop and think about this, this is a big deal. You have foreigners from outside of Israel who've come up to the feast to worship God, and now they're requesting an audience with the king who had just come into Jerusalem. 
Just as with Solomon of old, foreigners had come and had desired to see the son of David. Philip gets Andrew, and together they go to Jesus and tell him about this. And how does Jesus respond? It seems almost as if he sees within this request from these foreigners who desired to see him, as if he sees the first drops of a coming shower, the first drops of a coming downpour. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It seems as if he sees these Greek visitors to the Passover who desire to see him as a, as a foreshadowing of what would come when the gospel would be preached worldwide as a result of his death, resurrection, and ascension. Throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen time and again how the Jews were seeking to kill him or how they sought to seize Jesus, but they were not able to do so. And John chapter 7, verse 30 explicitly states that the reason was that his hour had not yet come. But now things are looking much differently, right? Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus knew and had made it clear to his disciples as he was going up to Jerusalem that last time that he was going to die. He said to them, as we find in Mark 10, 33 and 34, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. As we saw last week at his anointing at Bethany, he knew that the hour of his burial had come. And now... What he observes in the desire of these Greeks to see him is but more evidence that, indeed, the hour has come. The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he seems to see a foreshadowing of what would happen here when he was glorified, that he would be lifted up on the cross and would indeed draw all men to himself. Men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation would come and would believe in him. Indeed, the prophets had said that it was too small a thing that he should only raise up the tribes of Jacob and that God the Father had made him a light to the nations that the salvation of God would reach to the ends of the earth, as Isaiah described it in Isaiah 49, 6 and 7. And so Jesus considers these Greeks and he knows that his coming death is relevant to the dynamics of this situation, that his death is relevant to the inclusion of the Gentiles within the people of God, to the reconciling of Jew and Gentile in one body to God. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.16, this reconciliation happens through the cross. And Jesus knew this. Jesus sees this. He looks ahead to the cross and to the glories that would follow, glories that had been announced by the prophet. He knows that his hour has come. He knows that his time is up, and what does he say? He says, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus looks ahead to his death because he knows that his death is near. And he likens his death to the death of a grain of wheat that is planted in the ground. When a grain of wheat is planted in the ground, that grain must be destroyed in order for a stalk of wheat to germinate. You can't use that grain to grind and make bread once you plant it and a seed sprouts into a plant. Sure, you can keep that grain if you want to, but as Jesus says here, it remains alone. But if it dies by means of sprouting, it bears much fruit. And when Christ speaks in this way, what is he doing? But 
looking to the joy that is set before him so as to endure the cross and despise the shame of it as he looks to the blessings, the fruit that would come and would follow from the cross. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He's the one who has died and who by means of his own destruction has given life to many. His death has borne much fruit in bringing life to those who are dead. And Paul tells us about the fruitfulness of Christ's work in Romans 5.15 where he says, But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Again, Romans 5.19, For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. This is the fruit. Many will be made righteous. God's grace abounds to the many. Those many will be righteous. Why? Because if seed dies, it bears much fruit. This is what Jesus saw was going to happen. This is what Jesus knew would be happening to him soon. And it did happen, and by it, God's grace abounds. The many have been and still are being made righteous. Jesus laid down his life for his people, and his death has borne much fruit, and that many have been brought to new life in him. He suffered the wrath that was come, due to come to us so that we might be born again and live eternally. And notice, though, in what follows, how Jesus calls his people to follow him in this regard. Not that any of us can vicariously lay down our lives for the salvation of others. You can't. But we must be willing to lay down our lives, even to the death, if need be, in order to follow after Christ. Jesus repeats in verse 25 a a general statement that he has often used in his earthly ministry. He said it upon many occasions in in some different formats. He says, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Now, obviously, we have to understand love and hate that Jesus refers to here in a relative and general way. By loving one's life, Jesus means valuing this present life in this present world as of more importance than the life to come. And when Jesus speaks of hating one's life in this world, he doesn't mean that you have to despise your very existence in order to be faithful, but he rather means not valuing your life in this present world so highly that uh, as your, your life in the world to come. Compared to the world to come, we have to hate our lives now in order to love the life that is to come. Jesus is speaking relatively, comparatively, and generally, broadly. And Jesus comes back to this idea time and again in the Gospels. We find this again and again. We find it in Matthew 10.39 when he sent out the twelve. We see it in Matthew 16.25 after Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus was calling the twelve to, to serious discipleship. And Mark 8.35 and Luke 9.24 parallel that account after Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. And in Luke 17.33, as Jesus was telling his disciples about his own second coming, he used this, this imagery about hating your life and loving your life. And here we see it in John chapter 12, as Jesus points to his own death and calls his followers to be willing to follow him. Jesus talks a lot about this idea of hating your life in this world versus loving your life in this world. 
If you love your life in this world, just remember, you've only got one life to live. And then it's over. Uh, Years ago, I read a statement that said something to the effect of, it's not that life is so short, it's just that you're dead for so long. Some people might, might think like that, but the reality is that physical death is the least of your problems if you live and die as an enemy of God. And this is because of what comes after death, for it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, as we find in the book of Hebrews. And if you love your life in the sense that you serve yourself and you follow your own desires, then you lose your life. Because when you're raised from the grave on the last day, the resurrection that you will receive will be a resurrection to condemnation. You won't have eternal life. You'll have eternal death. It will profit you nothing if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. But on the other hand... If you hate your life in this world, which is to say if you don't put yourself and your own natural desires as number one, but rather put Christ first and yield yourself to him and his servant, even to the point of death, should that be required of you, then you will keep your life for all of eternity. Combining then verse 24 and verse 25 together, the point becomes clear. Christ laid down his life for his people so that in doing so there might be much fruit, resulting in eternal life for many, and subsequently those who are his, who receive eternal life from him, then follow him and lay down their lives for others. Jesus laid down his life for you. You then should lay down your life for him and for others as well. Indeed, Paul says much the same in 2 Corinthians 5.15 when he said, He died for all, so that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Hating our lives in this world means that we renounce ourselves, that we turn away from all our sins, sins that seem big, sins that seem small, and all of those in between. We have to renounce our lust, our greed, our covetousness, our laziness. We have to renounce every form of sexual immorality, be it homosexuality or those immoralities that are heterosexual in nature. We have to renounce lying, deception, pride, selfishness, filthy and unwholesome talk. We could go on, but you you get the point. We have to renounce all of these sins. And we even have to renounce our own dependence upon our own righteousness and goodness to bring us into God's favor. See, we not only have to deny our sinful selves, we also have to deny what one man referred to as the righteous self, our self-righteous selves, if you will. We have nothing to boast of in ourselves. We can't depend upon our Bible reading, our prayers, our church attendance, our evangelism, our acts of charity, love, kindness, and so on. Now, all of those things are good, and we should be doing those, and may God grant that we would do those things more. But we must not rest even the slightest weight of our hope of salvation on those things. We have to deny ourselves from depending upon ourselves to find favor with God. We have to renounce that kind of pride. So don't be in love with what you have done in your obedience to God because it can't save you. Hating your life in this world will also mean that you're willing to embrace ridicule, the ridicule of others for Christ's sake. It's not that we have to intentionally seek out the ridicule. There's no need to do that. We simply have to resolve to be faithful to the word of God and then let the chips fall where they may. If other people don't like you, they slander you, if they cancel you, we just have to consider that 
part of the cross. And if it gets worse, should we have to face imprisonment, suffering, or death because of our trust in Christ and our walk with him? have to count that as part of the cross as well. Now, those things are obviously unpleasant to flesh and blood. But whatever we suffer, we will be rewarded for that richly by Christ. And to that point, we see his words there in verse 26, where he says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Seems rather straightforward. Those who serve him, follow him. We're called to follow his example of laying down our lives to the point of suffering, if need be. Which is why we read those words of 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning, where Peter says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. If we serve Christ, we have to follow him. Follow him in the sense of verse 25, such that we hate our lives in this world so as to keep them for life eternity. Now that level of service to Christ sounds daunting, but look at the promise here that Christ gives to those who serve him in this way. The latter portion of verse 26. He says, Where I am, there my servant will be also, If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Just think about that. Those who serve Christ get to be with him. Those who serve Christ are honored by the Father. This is a great reward indeed, if you consider who you actually are and what you've actually done. We who deserve to be with the devil in hell are rather promised that we get to be with Christ. We who have dishonored God by our wickedness and justly deserve to be dishonored by God for all of eternity, we will be honored by God if we serve Christ. We heard about that uh, in in the Old Testament context, 1 Samuel chapter 2 this morning, where that man of God said to to Eli that that the Lord says that those who who honor him, he will honor. This is what we see here from the lips of Jesus, where he says, "If if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, this is truly amazing. This is truly good news. And since this good news is true, then the most important thing for all of us to do is to make sure that we are serving Christ because it is the servants of Christ who will be with Christ. It is the servants of Christ who will be honored by the Father. And so how do we serve Christ? We serve Christ, first of all, by coming to him in faith, to receive mercy, grace, and forgiveness through him so that we may be restored to fellowship with God the Father. And then once we have come to him and received that grace, we continue to walk in that grace. We continually offer ourselves to God as as living sacrifices as we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, no longer conformed to the, the pattern of this world, but transformed so that we may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We find in Colossians 2, 6 and 7 that as we have received Christ the Lord, so we are to continue on in him, having been firmly rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as we have been instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 2, we live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. This is how we serve Christ. 
And rest assured, those who serve Christ will be with him. Those who serve Christ will be honored by the Father. And so the question then is, are you serving Christ in that way? Have you begun by coming to him in faith? Have you continued in trusting him? Have you continued on in obedience to him? Now, if you have further questions about what it means to, to serve Christ by, by trusting in him and obeying him, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about this. As we move ahead in the text, to verses 27 and following, we come to our second point, which is Jesus brings judgment. Now, Jesus has been confronted with these Greeks who want to see him, and by these means he is recognized and acknowledged that the hour has come for him to be glorified. And Jesus now looks ahead and contemplates the cross. And this is, this is very troubling to him. We see his words in verses 27 and 28. He says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, on the one hand, we see in these words Christ's human nature responding to the horror of the cross. Jesus, contemplating the cross, knew that he would not only die an agonizing death, the death of crucifixion, but on top of that, he knew that he would actually be suffering more than any man who was crucified as he was bearing the sins of his people in his body and was suffering the wrath of God on account of that. He wasn't simply concerned about the dying, but the kind of death that he was going to die. He was troubled because the wrath of God was soon to be upon him. And this was really troubling to him. And we see the same thing going on in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he sweat drops of blood and prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But again, here as there, he submits himself to the Father. He says, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was really troubled in his human soul. And having human desires from one point of view, we can, we can understand how Jesus was fearful to suffer the wrath of God. But after being troubled, Jesus asks, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Christ's human nature naturally shrank away from suffering. But Jesus knew that the suffering of the cross was the whole reason for which he had come. He knew that he was that one grain of wheat that was to die and bring forth much fruit. And so he says, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. And he says, Father, glorify your name. Christ's desire was that God the Father would be glorified. And he knew that that would be by the means of his own death on the cross. And God the Father responded by speaking from heaven, saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it Again, and indeed, God the Father had glorified his name. He had glorified it in creation. He had glorified it through the earthly ministry of Jesus to this point, And he was soon to glorify his name again through the suffering of his dear son. And John indicates for us, though, that these words of the Father as a whole were lost upon the crowd. Some said that an angel had spoken to Jesus. Some said that it had thundered. But nevertheless, even though these words were lost upon the crowd, Jesus says that they came for the benefit of the crowd and not for his own benefit. Now, how could, how could this be if they couldn't understand what the words said? 
what the Father was saying in those words. Well, even if they couldn't understand what God the Father had said, the very fact that something had happened, something momentous that everyone could hear, like a roar of thunder or, in the perception of some, like an angel speaking, the very fact that something like that had happened, after Jesus said, Father, glorify your name, that should be sufficient to tip people off that something important was taking place. Here, here's Jesus, this man whom many acknowledged as, as the king of Israel who had just come into Jerusalem, and he's talking about being glorified, talking about his own death and how his followers should follow him, stating how he was troubled, but he knew that he had come to the earth for the purpose of this hour, and he asked the Father to glorify his name, and then something happens, something which the crowd could perceive. If you were spiritually sensitive and were, were awake and alert and thinking, this should, have been, this should have made you stop and think, whoa, who is this man? What is, what is going on here? And especially after the events of that week had played themselves out with Jesus going to the cross and all of the, the signs, the darkness that covered the earth and everything, this should have tipped people off to be able to put the pieces together that this was something significant, that this was the testimony of God the Father concerning his Son, and that it was a testimony given for their sakes. And Jesus continues, verse 31 and 32, he says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Jesus' death certainly brings salvation, but it also brings judgment. As to salvation, his death, his being raised up on the cross would be the way by which men and women from all over the world would be drawn to him. His death and his subsequent resurrection accomplished all that was needed for the atonement of sinners. And now Christ crucified and resurrected is proclaimed and men and women from all over the earth are coming to faith in him. As he says there in verse 32, if I am lifted up from the earth meaning lifted up on the cross, I will draw uh, all men to myself. Salvation comes from the death of Christ, but judgment also does. And in regard to the judgment, the, the judgment that the death of Christ brings is not, in this case, the final judgment, but it is a judgment in which he says, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And this reference to the ruler of this world is, of course, a reference to Satan. Even though Satan is not sovereign, this does not mean that he is not powerful. He is powerful. And we need not be surprised that Jesus refers to him here as the ruler of this world. John, or excuse me, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 calls him the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. 2. And John tells us, 1 John 5.19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's not a surprise that Jesus calls Satan the ruler of of this world. But Jesus here announces a judgment against him. He says, The ruler of this world will be cast out. And Jesus makes clear the imminent nature of this judgment. He says, Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And what he means is that by his soon to be accomplished death and resurrection, Jesus would deal the decisive blow to Satan. J.C. Ryle paraphrased uh, the words of Jesus like this. He said, Now has the season 
when a sentence of condemnation shall be passed by my death on the whole order of things which has prevailed in the world since creation, the world shall no longer be let alone and left to the devil and the powers of darkness. I am about to spoil them of their dominion by my redeeming work and to condemn and set aside the dark, godless order of things which has so long prevailed upon the earth. Again, the judgment which occurred on the cross was not the final judgment, but nevertheless the wound which was inflicted was a mortal one as far as Satan is concerned. Jesus had said during his, his ministry, Matthew 12, 28 and 29, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's an if-then statement. If I do this, then it means this. If he casts out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom has come upon you. And he did cast out demons by the Spirit of God. This means that the kingdom of God had come into time and space in the ministry of Jesus. And then Jesus went on to speak there in that same passage about the reduction of the powers of the evil ones when he said, Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. This is exactly what Jesus came to do, to bind Satan, the strong man, so that he might plunder Satan's house, as it were. John tells us, 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And this is exactly what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was binding the strong man, casting out the ruler of this world, destroying the works of the devil. Or as we find in Colossians 2.15, he was disarming the rulers and authorities and making a public display of them. He was establishing his kingdom and wreaking havoc on the kingdom of Satan. And I think we see this, this same thing playing out in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, as it were, gives us a thumbnail sketch of the incarnation of Christ and his victory over Satan and the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into the world. Revelation 12 describes the birth of a male child who would rule over the nations with a rod of iron, which child was caught up to God and his throne. Who do you think the male child is? The male child is our Lord Jesus Christ. And it describes his, his birth and ultimately his ascension to God the Father. And Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, goes on to describe how the dragon was cast out of heaven. John sees this war in heaven with Michael and his angels warring against the dragon and his angels. The dragon and his minions are not strong enough to retain their place in heaven. And what John describes there as a fight between Michael and the angels is but the execution of that victory over Satan, which was accomplished by our Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry on the earth as he died on the cross and rose again. The victory of Michael in Revelation chapter 12 is, as it were, the heavenly counterpart of Christ's victory on earth. And then if you read the effect of that victory, Revelation 12.10, we read this, that there was a loud voice that said, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. Because of the coming of Christ and his work, Satan has been cast down. His power has been limited. The kingdom of God has broken into the world. The salvation, the power, the authority of his Christ have come. They are already here. They came at his first advent, and we live in the midst of these glorious realities already. 
the cross of Christ brings judgment. Satan has been cast out. This doesn't mean that Satan is completely gone. He's still here. But what this does mean is that Satan's power has been limited by Christ's death and resurrection because by those means the kingdom of God has broken into the world and Christ has been lifted up and is now drawing men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation to himself. The judgment has come, the death blow has been struck, and Christ is victorious. The final judgment on the last day will reflect this judgment that has already been enacted. And this judgment that has defeated Satan is the very thing that gives victory to the people of Christ. Gives victory to us even if we have to lay down our lives to the point of death. And therefore it's not at all surprising after we read in Revelation 12.10 about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into this world and the authority of his Christ coming. We find this in Revelation 12.11. Speaking of the victory of Christ's people over Satan. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. This is the very thing Jesus is talking about here in John 12, right? Not not loving your life when faced with death, but hating your life in this world so that you love the life to come even more. Christ's death brings judgment. Christ is victorious and Satan is defeated. So which side of this judgment are you on? Are you on the side of judgment that receives salvation through faith in Christ? Or are you on the other side that will ultimately be condemned along with Satan and his demons? If you're on the wrong side as of now, the good news is there's still time to switch sides. You don't don't have to remain over there if you're on the wrong side of this judgment. And this brings us to our third point, which is believe in the light. As Jesus has been speaking these things that we've seen here, and the crowd has been taking them in at least to some extent, they ask, in verse 34, a legitimate question of Jesus. They say, We have heard out of the law that Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And they understood that Jesus was speaking about the Messiah going away. And they could not quite figure this out. In their understanding of the Old Testament, the Christ was not supposed to depart. He was supposed to come and stay around. And on the one hand, we, we need to give these people some credit here. They're, they're trying to think through this biblically. We don't know for sure what passages they were thinking of, but they may have been thinking of passages that describe the the perpetuity of the Messiah's kingdom, that his kingdom would would last forever. According to Daniel 2.44, the Messiah's kingdom was a kingdom which would not be destroyed. Or We read in our call to worship this morning, Daniel 7.14, that the Messiah's kingdom, when the Son of Man received a kingdom, he was given an, an everlasting dominion which would not pass away, and his kingdom would be such as would not be destroyed you might have been thinking of Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever on the order of Melchizedek. Maybe Psalm 72, 17, which we sang this morning. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. And let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. In light of texts like those, which seem to speak, which do speak of the Messiah's kingdom lasting forever, How is it that Jesus can talk about the Son of Man being 
lifted up in the sense of dying or in the sense of being taken away. And this didn't seem to make much sense to them as they were, were viewing it. And I think we need to give them credit where credit is due. Again, they're, they're trying to, to put these pieces together biblically. They say, we have heard in the law that Christ is to remain forever. The problem, though, is that they were not taking into account the, the spiritual nature of Christ's kingdom, that at its inception, the Messiah's kingdom was not a typical geopolitical kingdom. And they were also not taking into account that after the Christ would be lifted up to die, he would be raised again from the dead and would consequently ascend to the right hand of the Father and reign at the Father's right hand over his kingdom. In short, their understanding was not entirely correct. But what does Jesus do here? He doesn't go into the issue of how they understood the messianic passages of the Old Testament. Rather, he simply reiterates that he's going away, and he calls them to believe in him. He says, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness will not overtake you. For he who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. In short, Jesus is calling them to faith. This was the hour of their visitation. The Son of Man, Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, is right there in front of them. And he wouldn't be there for long. And while he was there, he calls them to believe. To believe in the light. To believe in him. So that the darkness would not overtake them. Truly, Isaiah had prophesied of old, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land the light will shine on them. And there he was. The light of the world was right in front of these people. And Jesus wants them to walk in the light. He urges them to believe so that they would not walk in darkness. He says, whoever walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. You're lost. You have no idea what you're doing, where you're going, where you're going to end up. But, he says, those who believe in the light become sons of light. We become sons of God by adoption, and we walk in the light as God is in the light. Outside of Christ is only darkness. And it's not hard to see the darkness in this world. As we, as we look out in the world, it's not hard to see the wickedness. But there is light. There is one who was sent to lighten our darkness. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the light, and he calls us to believe in him so that we may become sons of the light, so that we may avoid the judgment which has already been struck and will on the last day be fully enacted on the evil one. He calls us to avoid this judgment. He calls us to avoid the kingdom of darkness. He calls us that we may believe in him and become sons of the light, that we may become his and walk with him forever. And Jesus' words here indicate that the opportunity to believe will not last forever. And indeed, it won't. So today, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Christ and his coming. We ask, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith, that we would believe that we would truly be children of the light, that we'd walk with Christ, that we would love him, 
that we would worship him because of who he is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. We praise you, Father, that Christ has died for us and uh, that we and so many others all throughout the earth are the fruit of his dying and rising again for us. We give you praise and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.